We've been in this series talking about the perfect family. That video actually does show a pretty good kind of difference between ideal and what is reality, right? You have all these ideas about what the family is supposed to be like, what it's supposed to act like, how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to act, how the relationships are supposed to go. And then all of a sudden you get hit with reality and you realize pretty quickly that reality and ideal don't always mix. In fact, over the last few weeks, we've done some important things talking about the goals that we have in mind and handling conflict and what it means to help out one another within a family. And um, just to let you know, if this is your first time here or, uh, and you haven't been here uh, over the last few weeks, all of these are online. You can go to our website, which is fbcgillisville.com, and click on that on the website and the slides that come across. It'll take you to where you can see all the sermons. And I would recommend, if you have a family and you haven't been here for all of them, or you'd like to review any of them, I'd like to recommend them to you, especially the last couple of weeks. I've heard from several of you how the question from the last couple of weeks, how can I help, and um, right now what's happening is I'm not getting something that I want, has worked itself into conversations in your house for better or for worse, right? But that's you work on that, it'll happen. And we, I was thinking about it this week. We're, we're finishing up the series this week. And what I want us to do today is to stretch our thinking a little bit. Because generally when I ask, tell me about your family, or I say that to you, hey, tell me something about your family, or tell me about your family, just being from where we are in the West, the first thing we think of is our immediate family. So the thing that we think of is, well, let me tell you about my husband, let me tell you about my wife, let me tell you about um, my kids, maybe grandkids, but we think immediate family. If you ask that question almost anywhere else in the world besides the West, what they'll say is, well, my great-grandfather, or six generations ago. And what's interesting is, in America, that was the way it was in the beginning. When you ask somebody, tell me about your family, the one thing they say, well, three generations ago, my grandfather came into Ellis Island. And they would tell you how they got there. We have kind of shrunk that down to us. So I want us today to think a little broader, a little larger, a little more than just the immediate family. Because the truth is, who you are today was influenced greatly by previous generations. Right? Maybe it was just stories you heard, or maybe it was a grandfather, or a great-grandfather, or a grandmother, or a great-grandmother, or just a picture that your mom showed you, this is your great-grandmother, and she would always do this. Or this is your grandmother, and she always, your grandfather, and one of the things he loved. We're a product in many ways from the generations that have gone before. Now, that's not true in every case. Some of you come from terrible family lives and terrible lives and God has saved you and rescued out of that and you are beginning to build your own legacy and passing down to the next generation but in large part at least genetically we have semblance of previous generations and in some ways their experiences in fact I was thinking about it this week because um, two people that influenced me greatly growing up were my grandfather and my grandmother Uh, I was thinking about it because of vacation Bible school my grandmother um, I went to my Bible school at the church that I attended, but I always went to hers as well. She taught it, and she would practice on me the two weeks before vacation Bible school. So I would get it at my church, and then I would get two weeks of granny, and then I would get two, another week. And so by the end, I could I could quote the curriculum to you. All right, 
Granny, you missed this activity. We're supposed to do that next, all right? But Granny, one of the things I remember about her is mom telling me these stories. Apparently when I was born or about to be born, my grandparents were in a church that they would not stay in. And at that time, there was a great conflict in the church because some people there actually wanted new people to come to church. Now, my grandmother was one of those people. And they had a business meeting to discuss whether they should let other people come to this church. It was a church of 75, and they thought that was the perfect-sized church. You know what most people think is the perfect-sized church? Whatever the size of the church they are in at the moment, all right? So that, that was the thing. So they had this business meeting. And in the middle of the business meeting, my grandmother stood up, and she began to talk about why they needed to let other people in. My grandfather was doing the same. And in the midst of that, a man walked up to my grandfather and pointed his finger. Now, my grandfather was a was a, just a gentle guy. He, I never saw him hurt anybody, never thought about hurting anybody. My, my granny could, she had this little thing called the helping hand. Anybody ever have a helping hand? It was a piece of cardboard that was thin as could be. It was not a helper, all right? That was for when we had done something we shouldn't do. But granny... This guy pointed his finger in Gramps' face. My granny grabbed his finger and told him to put that thing away or there would be more trouble than he would know what to do with. This isn't a church business meeting, all right? And here's what, so we'd always tell that around. Remember that time, Nell, you pointed, you grabbed that guy and they would tell it. And granny would say, it's just ridiculous that people think the church isn't about reaching other people for Jesus. And so that stuck with me. Like, when I hear that story, I think about that. I thought about this week because I'm going to Brazil. And the first person I ever knew that went on a short-term mission trip outside the United States was my grandpa. Before that was the cool thing to do, before churches all over America were doing it, he partnered with a local association. He went to the Philippines. And I remember Gramps was going to the Philippines. I remember all that. I remember coming back. And the big thing there, they had jeepneys, and he brought this one, a model of one. And I remember all that. What I really remember is that he flew back shoeless barefoot because the pastor that they were working with had worn his shoes out and my gramps said i can't leave here with you without shoes and so he flew from the philippines back to the united states without shoes on as i'm getting ready for my seventh trip to brazil there are a lot of other factors that have led me to go to overseas and to go to brazil and as i'm getting ready for the first trip my son is making to brazil I can't help but think of the legacy that started with him. But here's what we all have to realize. Because it's fun to reminisce, isn't it? Talk about great stories of the past, especially if we got them. What we all have to realize is we are somebody's previous generation. We, in the future, will be the people that they'll say, I remember when my great-granddad. Or we'll be that picture on the mantle that our grandkids show to their kids and say, your great-grandfather Lyle. The question that we have to ask is, what are we kind of passing down from one generation to the next? You are the people you are partly because of the people that came before you. And the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren you have, no matter if you are at the place where you're already having grandchildren and great-grandchildren, or whether you're at the place where you're not even thinking about getting married, what's the generations that come after? What's your impact going to be on them? Here's what I want to do today. 
I want to go to a family in the Old Testament. Now, let me just say real quickly. There aren't any good families in the Old Testament. Okay? Sometimes people will say, I just want to have a biblical family. You've got to watch that kind of statement. All right? I mean, you think about it. Who, who are big heroes of the Old Testament? David, right? Family a mess. Right? He cheats on his wife. He has a child out of that relationship. That child dies. He ends up marrying that girl. He has a son that gets mad at him because of all that's going on. Tries to take over. Gets killed in the process. Hosea, right? Marries a prostitute. Names his kids. Not loved and not my people. Now, can you imagine if he was a preacher? Can you imagine me saying, let me show you a picture of my new child. This is I don't love her Larson. Well, that's what the name of the kids were, right? I mean, that was crazy. Noah's family, just crazy. But the craziest of them all is, and this is just, when you think about it, the craziest family of them all is the most important family in the history of the world. It starts in the book of Genesis, takes up more than half of the book of Genesis, and it tells the story of this family out of which the three major religions of the world. Think about this. Over half of the people in the world today claim to follow a religion that came from this family. Who's the, the great granddaddy, the big one, the patriarch? Who started it all? Abraham, right? And Abraham had a son and his name was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons and their names were Jacob and Esau, although really it should be Esau and Jacob, right? Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger, Esau's coming out, Jacob grabs his heel on the way out, Jacob was kind of a jokester. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve, right? right. Somebody want to name those for me real quick? Okay, who's the most famous of them? Let's do that. Who's the most famous son? Joseph. Here, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this family. And I want to tell you a story most of you know, at least if you grew up in church, you kind of know the story. And then I want to link it to a story you may not know and talk about or may not remember how the link shows that we can impact the generation after. All right? Okay, I'm going to do it whether you're okay with it or not, but that's what we're doing. All right. So here's the story of Joseph. What do you know about Joseph? What, what was the first big moment in Joseph's life that we know about? He was sold into slavery, right? His brothers didn't like him. Why didn't they like him? Because he was the son of his dad's favorite wife. Now, if you want to know that a family's dysfunctional, if you have to use the phrase dad's favorite wife, right? That means you're dysfunctional, right? Because he was married to, I mean, you know, he had two wives. He had his favorite wife and his second favorite wife. And then he had these um, servant girls who, when his favorite wife couldn't have kids, she kept saying, hey, servant girl, go have a baby for me. And so, like, every day he comes home, there's, like, a different woman saying, it's time to have a baby, right? It is a mess. Go read Genesis. It's a mess. So Joseph is the son of his favorite wife, and the other brothers don't like that. So what do they decide to do? Before they sold him, what do they want to do? They want to kill him, right? So they put him in a pit to decide how they're going to do that. And while he's in the pit, one of them goes, why are we going to kill him? We can make money off of him. Doesn't that sound like brothers right there? Amen. Thank you. And so he puts him, they come, they, these traders come by, and they sell him into slavery, right? They get the money, and then they tear up the clothes, they put some animal blood on it, and they take it back to their dad and go, 
we found Joseph's clothes with blood all over them. He must have been eaten by wild animals. Meanwhile, Joseph, now picture this. We, we sanitize the Bible too much, but picture this. 17-year-old boy in chains being drugged behind a camel to slavery. When he goes into slavery, he gets to Egypt, and by the fortune of God, and there's no other explanation for it, he ends up in the house of a military guy, a commander guy, a leader guy, and that guy's name is Potiphar, right? And he does so well in Potiphar's house. It says that he is put over the house of Potiphar. There was just one problem. Potiphar's wife decides she really likes Joseph. And so she goes to him. And here's the crazy thing about Joseph. Joseph decides in a moment to act as if God is always with him in spite of the fact it appeared that God had abandoned him. And so she comes to him and Joseph says, I cannot do that because it would dishonor. She propositions him. He says, I cannot because it would dishonor my master who, by the way, is your husband, and it would dishonor my God. Living as if God is right there, even though it appeared God had abandoned him as a slave in Egypt. So what did Potiphar's wife do? Grabs his coat, holds on to it, he runs away. She accuses him. Where does Joseph go? As a slave, he goes to jail. While he's in jail... There's this amazing verse, by the way, while he's in jail. We're going to put it up on the screen, I think. It's uh, Genesis 39, 21. Look at this. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness. That's good, right? And favor in the eyes of the prison warden. There are a lot of people I'd love to have favor in the eyes of. I'm not crazy about having favor in the eyes of the prison warden because that means... I'm in prison, right? So just think about this. He's in jail. He's this 17, 18, 19-year-old kid in jail as a slave. No rights, no privileges, nothing. And while he's there, a couple of Pharaoh's guys come down, and they get sent down there with him. And while they're there, they start having these dreams, and they are just talking about Joseph says, I can tell you what those dreams mean. Well, it tells what they mean. One was a cupbearer, one was a baker, and he said to the cupbearer, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. Um, know that you're going to be restored to power. Awesome, that's great. What about mine? What about my dream? Um, uh, you're not. You'll be dead in a day or so. So, too bad for you. All right. He says to the guy, though, the cupbearer says, "When you get to where you're supposed to be, when Pharaoh restores you, all I ask you to do is to remember me." And so he goes. And he gets there, and he's in the place, and he's there, the, the, not Joseph, but the cover, and he tells the, the, this, this restored, and it's just amazing. And guess what he does? He forgets. And for two more years, Joseph sits in prison. Then to those two years, Pharaoh has a dream nobody can figure out. And while he's telling this one day, the guy goes, wait a minute. <laughs> hey, Pharaoh, funny thing. You remember when you were really mad at me? And we don't have to go back to why or what happened. Do you remember that? Well, you put me in Yeah, you remember that? Let's don't dwell on it. But while I was there, there was this guy. And he told me 
what my dream meant, and it came true. Maybe he could help. And so they call for Joseph. And you can just imagine the scene. Joseph is a Hebrew slave in Egyptian prison. He would not have been dressed nice or anything, but to enter into the palace of the king, you had to be royally dressed. And so they get him ready. They put the makeup that the Egyptians would all wear. The jewelry is all. They get all that together. They bring him up. They present him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, who in the Egyptian understanding was God himself, says to him, I hear you can interpret my dreams. And what does Joseph say? No, I can't. But God can. Now think about this for a minute. Joseph, standing before a man who claims to be God, says there is a God that is higher than you that you owe allegiance to that can tell you what your dream's about. Is that bold for a Hebrew slave? Yeah. So Joseph says, here's your dream. And some of you know this. They're the, the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows and the skinny cows eat the fat cows, right? And what he says is, there are seven years of plenty coming, Pharaoh, and then there will be seven years of drought. And he says, not that you asked my advice, but here's a little advice. Why don't you get somebody to oversee a program where you build silos in all the biggest cities, and when you get those silos built, you tell everybody they have to give you 20% of their grain, and then the 20% of that grain goes into your silos, and then your silos are full, and when the famine hits, you can say, listen, I've got grain. If anybody needs grain, come by. It will make you immensely rich. You can imagine the scribes are all over there going, hey, are you getting this? That's, man, that's a good idea. Did you get that? And Pharaoh says, sounds like a great idea. He said, here's who I'm going to put in charge. You. Welcome Hebrew slave that was just in prison to being the second in command in the most powerful country in the world. Can you imagine what Fox News and CNN would say about that? Well, it depends on if they're Republican or Democrat, but that would just imagine it's the one they don't like. All right. So guess what happens over seven years? Plenty, 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 plenty. January 1st, year 8, nothing. Two years into the drought, everybody needs food, including Joseph's brother. Look at what it says. This is in Genesis chapter 42. The sons of Israel, that's the sons of Jacob, were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. It goes on. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all his people and his brothers. Now remember, some of you remember this. They had a dream that would have made his brothers really, really mad. That, hey, one day you're all going to, guys, I had this cool dream. One day you're going to bow down to me. Isn't that awesome? They didn't think so. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. All right, here's what I want you to do. Hit pause. Pause this story right where it is. His brothers, who had sold him into slavery and left him for dead, are before him knelt down. And he's got a decision to make. Pause there. Rewind. If you've got a Bible, turn it to Genesis chapter 33. If you don't, it's okay. We'll have most of the stuff up on the screen. Now remember who we talked about? Who was... Who was Joseph's dad? Jacob, right? Who was Jacob's brother? Esau. Now, here's the deal. Esau was born first, and that was a big deal. More so than just the bragging rights of, ah, I'm a minute or two older than you, that twins today might have. Okay? Because the firstborn received the birthright and the blessing, and those were two important things. The birthright meant that he got double portion in inheritance, and their dad was wealthy. 
And he got double what everybody else got. That's major. The blessing was that when his dad died, he passed on the blessing to the oldest son and said, you are now in charge. What you say goes. What you say is the law of the land. That is what happens. So Esau's born first. Jacob's born second. So who's supposed to get the birthright? Esau. Who's supposed to get the blessing? Esau, right? Well, one day Esau, who was a hunter, a woodsman, out all the time with animals, always trying to find the next kill, was out doing that. And his brother was back at the house just making stew. Apparently he's pretty good at making stew. And Esau comes back to him. And Esau's been out, and he's sweaty, and he's hot, and he's hungry. You know, I mean, any of you that are parents have heard the, I'm so hungry I could die. Right? That's literally what he says. He says, what do I need to give you for a bowl of stew? Now, anybody here a younger brother? These are the moments we live for. Amen? When the older sibling comes to us and says, what do I have to do to get something you want? Right? So I can just imagine... Jacob is sitting there and he's thinking, why not ask big? Why not go big? Just give me your birthright. And Esau says, what good is a birthright to me if it means that I'm dead? And he trades double portion inheritance for a bowl of stew. Now, I did a sermon on that a while back, just how momentary decisions can alter the history of your life. They still got the blessing, right? Time for the blessing comes. Esau goes out to get some stuff. Jacob goes and dresses all in the stuff. Just like his brother, sprays some stuff on him, sits down like his brother, gets everything ready, brings a favorite meal, puts it before his dad. And while Esau is still out, Jacob does what? Steals the irrevocable blessing. What did Esau think about all that? What would you think about all that? Your brother just got you out of your birthright and your blessing. Here's what it says in the Bible that he thought about it. Esau held a grudge. That's when you want to go. Exactly. Against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Then it says this. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. What happens if he kills Jacob? Guess what he gets back? Birthright. And a blessing. So what does Jacob do? Those of you that know the story. Stick with me just a minute. We're almost there. What does Jacob do? He leaves, right? He leaves, goes to his uncle's house. While he's at his uncle's house, he falls in love with the girl. He tries to marry her, but the uncle accidentally gives him the other girl. When he thought he was marrying the one girl, the uncle slips the other girl in, and then he works for 14 years to get both girls, his favorite wife, Rachel, and his second favorite, Leah. They live in that area, and he is blessed beyond what anybody could imagine. He has son after son after son after son. He has all these amazing blessings. He has livestock and possessions. He gets to be so much. The people of that land say, you can no longer stay with us. You have to leave. And in the midst of that, he hears a word from the Lord. In Genesis 31.3, he hears this word from the Lord that says, it is time to go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. 
Going back to the land of his fathers, who does that mean going back to? Esau. Can you imagine how that family conference went? Hey, y'all know that your uncle Esau? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes, the one that has wanted to kill us for 20 years. Yes, him. Guess what? We're going to go back to him. It's interesting because I just love how in the Old Testament, New Testament, it just kind of says these major things and it just acts like people say, okay, let's go. Reminds me of something that Charles Stanley's grandfather used to tell him. He says, if God tells you to run your head through a brick wall, you start running and trust God to make the hole. Right? If that's what God asks you to do, do it. So he gets his family together. And he gets them all kind of together. We're, here, we're getting here to Genesis 33. His wives and kids would have known what was going on. They were going to see Uncle Esau. And they start on the path. And in Genesis chapter 33, look at what it says up here. Genesis 33. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau, come, Esau coming toward him with how many men? That is a small army. Right? So he divided the children among Leah, second favorite wife, Rachel, favorite wife, and two female slaves. It goes on to say, he put the female slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel, and who's the only child mentioned? Joseph, last. He himself, this is a great picture, went out ahead. So he gets them all lined up. Hey, okay, I need slave girls, your kids here, all right? Next slave girl, your kids here. All right, Leah, get your kids. Let's get them all together. Rachel and Joseph, y'all are in the back. Now, why do you want them in the back? They were his favorites, right? Protection. Then he goes out in front of them. So you can't say he was a coward. He goes out in front of them. And as he's walking towards Esau, he bows down seven times. Walks a little bit, bows. Walks a little bit, bows. Walks a little bit, bows. Esau had every right to do whatever needed to be done in this moment. He had the force. He had the ability. It was now his territory. Jacob had left. He had stolen what was not rightfully his. Whatever Esau wanted to do, he was within his rights. This is what it says. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. In that moment, when justice could have been served in a variety of ways, Esau showed mercy to those that did not deserve mercy. Fast forward to back to where I told you to pause. Joseph, standing before his brothers, bowing down to him. And in that moment, he has a decision to make. And what we see him do is react. After first doing a little play to make sure everything's okay at home and everything's good, they didn't do anything to Benjamin, all that, he does exactly what his uncle Esau did. Can I tell you something that's disheartening a little bit? Your kids and your grandkids will not remember almost anything you say. You know, as a preacher, that is a depressing thought. Most of you are going to remember most of the, are going to forget most of this sermon by about 12:01. And maybe not then we may still be going at them. No we won't. But they will remember what you do. They may forget what you say, but they will remember what you do. 
I don't think it's any coincidence that the writer of Genesis emphasized Joseph specifically being at the event where Esau showed mercy to his dad. Because I think that was, you know, for a family, that is a landmark moment. For us, it's a small story in a grander picture. But for those kids, my dad is going out there to be killed. My dad has done something to him. Uncle Esau is going to kill him. And when he sees Uncle Esau give a hug and wrap his arms around him and then talk about his kids, the next phrase is, who are all these people you got? Well, these are my kids. Let me introduce you to my kids. And reconciliation happens in that moment. Joseph is so impacted by it that when the moment comes that his brothers are before him, he can't think, even though it has been 20 plus years, since his brothers did it. The bitterness is not there. The hatred is not there. All he can think about is how can we reconcile this family. In fact, words don't just, I mean, excuse me, actions don't just speak louder than words. Sometimes they echo into the next generation. And so as parents, as grandparents, even as youth, how is your life going to echo into the next generation. When you become the previous generation, what will your life look like? Sometimes we get so caught up in the small world we're living in that we fail to see the long-term effects that our lives can have as they echo generation after generation after generation. Would you pray with me?